Welcome to the New Books Network. What does the State Department do? Who populates its ranks and how has that changed over time? What happens when officials in the department disagree with the department's policies? All these questions have come to the fore in the context of the war between Hamas and Israel that began after the Hamas attacks of October 7th. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Bill Russo, who's Assistant Secretary of State in the State Department's Bureau of Global Public Affairs. During 2015-2017, Mr. Russo previously served as the Department of State uh, advisor to then-Deputy Secretary Antony Blinken. Earlier in his career, Mr. Russo was advisor to Mr. Blinken in his role as Deputy National Security Advisor at the National Security Council. He began his time in government service in the office of then Vice President Joe Biden in August 2011, working in multiple roles, including senior advisor to then National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Mr. Russo holds an MA in Environment Development and Policy from the University of Sussex in Brighton, uh, England, and in an honors BA in political science, history, and English from the University of Delaware. He's originally from Exton, Pennsylvania. Thanks for joining us today, Assistant Secretary of State Bill Russo. Thanks for having me on, Don. So let's start with a very basic question. You serve as Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Global Public Affairs at the State Department. Could you just describe for us what the State Department does and why it's important? So happy happy to start there. You know, each and every day, uh, not just here in Washington, uh, not just at other sites around the country, but of course at consulates and embassies uh, and posts all around the world, uh, the role of the State Department, the role of American diplomacy is, to, of course, to uh, pursue our national security interests, to make the lives of the American people a little bit safer, more prosperous, more secure. Uh, and the way that we do that is to try and uh, end conflicts where they have started and prevent them uh, before, they've, uh, before they've begun to the extent that we can. Uh, and so we rely on, uh, we rely on, our, uh, on our embassies, our diplomatic staff all around the world. Uh, as well as a number of, uh, of, of professionals located here in Washington in our headquarters um, to help make sense of the world uh, and help uh, make sure that each and every day we're working to make it a little bit safer and more secure. So the department is in a very prominent role in some of the current political developments in the world. Obviously, I'm talking about the Hamas-Israel conflict and also, of course, in the Ukraine-Russia conflict. So, but in neither case are we really directly involved. I mean, you could dispute the extent to which it's direct, indirect, et cetera. But in any case, we don't have boots on the ground really in either of these places. 
So I guess the question is, what does the State Department do in a con- in a context such as that? You no, know, you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose I would start the answer to that going back to, to something I think Madeleine Albright maybe first said in the late 1990s when she referred to the United States as an indispensable nation. Uh, and so I think particularly if you're looking at kind of the, the post-Cold War era, uh, one of the realities is that, uh, as you mentioned, there are there are no shortage of conflicts where uh, or potential conflicts where the United States is, is not itself a, a, a direct participant or a combatant, um, but where we have, number one, an interest in preventing that conflict or ending that conflict, uh, and number two, the capacity to do so. Uh, and so I think what you see now uh, in Ukraine, uh, what you see with the Israel-Hamas conflict, is that uh, the world looks to the United States um, to help resolve conflicts to help again to help to, to help prevent them um because we are still in many ways that indispensable nation we're certainly in a different world than we were uh, in the late 1990s uh power has shifted um both among states uh, uh with non-state actors but there is still this perception that the united states has a unique play uh, as uh, as an international arbiter, uh, and that is again where, where where the State Department's work comes in. Um, and so I think what you know you know to, to to look at the two conflicts that you mentioned, maybe uh, start kind of chronologically first with with Russia Ukraine. You know what you've seen there throughout is uh, United States the United States working in American diplomacy, working across a whole number of actors to try and. Um, you know, support Ukraine. And that support Ukraine, you know, goes back to kind of some of the founding principles of, of the UN Charter uh, about sovereignty and respect for borders. And so what the United States has tried to do um, throughout is, you know, first and foremost, uh, you know, stand with Ukraine uh, globally through, uh, through the UN, through other international organizations, to provide Ukraine with the security assistance that they need to make sure that they can defend themselves. Um, uh, we have been trying to provide Ukraine with the economic uh, support and assistance um, to make sure that you know they can keep the power on throughout a cold winter, um, to make sure that they can pay salaries for teachers and other civil servants uh, that are necessary to, to, to help keep the country going. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know we we've also just kind of uh, one of the the parts of the world that that is a little bit closer to what I work in in, in the realm of public diplomacy um, is that we have sought to support you know the Ukraine's culture because it's not simply just that uh, Vladimir Putin has been trying to. Uh, you know, take Ukraine uh, uh, off the map as a sovereign state, um, but it's really tried to to eliminate the the identity of Ukraine and Ukrainians uh, off the state as well. And so, whether it's cultural, economic, security, uh, kind of more uh, multilateral, uh, diplomatic, all of that is the work of the State Department each and every day. And it's work that takes place here. It's work that obviously takes place with our incredible team on the ground in Kiev, um, but in capitals throughout Europe and throughout the world. Um, one of the realities of, of kind of of conflict and diplomacy during this era is that uh, everything quickly becomes global. Uh, and so it's been uh, a really incredible effort to kind of mobilize globally. Um, we obviously, more uh, uh, more more recently uh, with Israel Hamas, um, again, you know, the State Department's kind of uh, working across multiple vectors all at the same time, all at the same kind of uh, level of, of a high level of urgency in terms of, um, you know, providing Israel with this, the security support that it needs to ensure that a terrorist attack like October 7th can't happen again. Um, but equally, at the same time, making sure that we are, uh, you know, first off, pressing the Israelis to to, to um, live up to their responsibilities uh, for protection of civilians, 
working with the Israelis, the Egyptians, and others to get humanitarian aid into Gaza, um, working with other partners in the region like Qatar, who have a unique degree of influence uh, with Hamas to try and get hostages out. Uh, and then, of course, working with everyone throughout the region to try and make sure that, again, once this conflict has started, that it does not spread further, because the only thing worse than a kind of uh, concentrated uh, conflict in the region would be a full regional conflagration. And so, again, there, you know, multiple parts of the State Department, from on the humanitarian side to, to the provision of security assistance, uh, to, uh, of course, our incredible diplomats on the ground uh, throughout the region, uh, day in and day out, are, are, are working across all of these sectors all at the same time. And that, to me, is actually is, is, is kind of the, the, the real story of the State Department, is that, you know, it's not simply just that there are a few diplomats sitting in a room, sitting across the table, talking to try and hammer out uh, you know, agreement around uh, around a conflict that might be the kind of you know traditional view of uh, a base level view of what diplomacy is and what diplomacy does. Um, the reality is that it is incredibly complex. It's it involves working on multiple issues across multiple sectors all at the same time because they all ladder up to the same thing, uh, which is again making the world a little bit a uh, little bit more safe and more secure. Right. So, I mean, needless to say, there's been an enormous amount of controversy about this conflict in uh, in Israel and on the, you know, in terms of the U.S. posture and, and its role, even if it's, you know, there are no boots on the ground. Obviously, the United States is involved in a huge indirect way. Um, and this is leading to protests and demonstrations around the country, around the world. Um, and Indeed, you know, it's now become clear that this is true even within the State Department. And I mean, the New York Times, among others anyway, has uh, reported that there are these so-called dissent cables that uh, employees of the State Department and I guess also of USAID can use uh, in order to express their criticisms and uh, you know, displeasure about the U.S. position. And I thought that was an, you know, very interesting thing. I hadn't known such a thing existed. It apparently goes back to the Vietnam War in a situation of similarly, you know, great contention. And, you know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what what's going on in those cables and, and what's happening. How is the administration or at least the department responding yeah. And so I think, you know, one of the when you have a 70,000 person workforce like the State Department, it's not only, I think, a reality, but actually a very good and healthy thing um, that you aren't going to have 70,000 people who all believe the same thing. You're going to have a diversity of thought, a diversity of opinion, a diversity of perspective. Uh, and so, of course, you know, as as is playing out now, as as has played out throughout uh, multiple other times uh, in our past, as you mentioned, going back certainly to the, to the Vietnam War, um, you know, there's actually... Uh, in addition to, and I'll, and I'll get to the specific dissent channel in a minute, but I would say more broadly, there's a kind of culture of constructive dissent that exists within the State Department. And I think, um, you know, it's actually, I think for me, you know, they're one of the, the best and perhaps most unique and, and, and the healthiest parts of an institution like this is that there, that, that dissent does not simply exist um, it's not simply up to each individual to kind of find ways to, 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 to express it, but that there are actual, you know, bureaucratic tools that are in place uh, for people to, uh, to, to avail themselves and, and, and to create um, a conversation within our own institution. Uh, and so I think, you know, the, the dissent channel is perhaps the, 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 maybe the most unique element to that, certainly the most uh, perhaps publicly known 
um, piece to it. Um, but there are other ways, uh, other channels um, uh, uh, for that. And actually, one of the ones that's been created um, in the course of this administration under Secretary Blinken's leadership is, is kind of the, the, the counterpart to the dissent channel, uh, which is the idea, policy ideas channel, uh, which recognizes that, you know, uh, there are a lot of people here with a lot of good ideas. And obviously, there are processes for those ideas to come up. But sometimes in any kind of bureaucracy like ours, um, you know, it, it can people can feel stymied or it can be difficult to, to move a kind of new and innovative idea up. And so one of the other things that we've sought to do is to say that, hey, we don't only want your good ideas coming up when they are in reaction to a policy that you disagree with, when they are in dissent to, to something that we've already decided. We actually we want to create a proactive channel for some of these good ideas to come up. And so we also have a, a counterpart channel that is kind of to kind of say, hey, if you have a good idea that isn't getting traction or that is you know, about something that might seem far, far, far removed, but that we need to start acting on now, there's also an opportunity for you to, to put those ideas into our system. Uh, and then, of course, as the secretary has reminded all of the, the kind of leaders of this department throughout this conflict and, and others before it, um, is that it's also all of our job um, to make sure that we are fostering a broader community uh, of conversation uh, and of constructive dissent so that, um, again, the, the, the dissent channel is, is in some ways uh, hopefully not the um, option of first resort uh, for people who have disagreements, but that, that instead we can find ways to surface those ideas and channel them constructively through what we call the front channel, um, the kind of uh, you know, regular uh, policymaking process. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, the Sen channel, and, and there has certainly been public reporting on it, um, uh, is, is really unique and really interesting for a few reasons. Uh, first off, um, you know, it is designed in a way to be as confidential as possible uh, so that the, the people who draft and sign on to those cables do not get any blowback in their in, in in their careers, right? And that's actually one of the most important parts of constructive dissent is that it's it's not simply enough uh, to give people space. It's to make sure that they they have space and the freedom to express themselves in ways that will not cause them reputational harm or uh, discipline or anything like that. Um, and so the the channel is constructed in a way so that that people can again freely express these ideas in ways that will not, you know. Get them a bad review at the end of the year or otherwise um, uh, damage their kind of their, their credibility um, but it's also designed in a way that it is is um is close to the secretary and that these these channels uh, these cables that come up through the descent channel all make their way to the secretary all of them get a response uh and that that you know that provides kind of an incredible amount of of, of, of access and, and impact um to those who, who who take part in it and so Again, it is um, uh, it, it is not the only tool for constructive dissent uh, within the State Department, but it's perhaps uh, certainly the most publicly known representation of what is a broader, uh, I think, healthy culture of constructive dissent that, that exists here. I mean, Secretary Blinken, uh, as you've just said, Secretary Blinken has said that he's listening and you know responding to these things. I mean, can you think of any particular concrete policy that has changed as a result of? You know what's come up the up the descent channel. I, I mean that may not be so easy to do. I understand, but yeah, and I mean, I and I suppose I should say that again. You know, the, the while the, they they keep the distribution again to protect the kind of confidentiality and reputation of the drafters and the signers, they keep it quite closely held among uh, a small group that eventually goes to the secretary in part so that um, you know, that there is not 
for their for the damage folks. So I, I mean, personally, I am uh, I, I, uh, I have I have seen cables that have made their way out into the public through other means, um, but the actual descent channel again is is kind of protected in a way that you know someone in my role who does not have a kind of need to know um, of what the cables say um, can. Um, you know, it is not is not part of the part of the distribution there. So I, I can't kind of on a firsthand basis say uh, what I have what I have seen and read because um, again the, the the way the channel operates is such that it's not it's not for me to uh, not for my prying eyes to, to know. It's not, land, it's not landing in your inbox. No, no, and I think and again I think that is that is a good thing um, sure. uh, that that it's not. Um, but the, you know the thing I will say is. Um, you know, I think, and 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 again, in addition to the fact that you know the secretary is reading all of these, of course, all of them are are, are getting a response, and so uh, you know, I'm certain some some of the responses over time have certainly been um, uh, ones that that acknowledge and, and appreciate the, the the insight, but that disagree with it. Um, but but knowing, you know, I will say certainly knowing Secretary Blinken uh, as someone who is open and welcoming to all of this, um, you know, I, I don't know that it's quite as easy to say this memo led to this decision um but i know that again the kind of broader kind of culture of of of, of conversation uh is one that definitely you know i'm sure you can probably point to uh, a series of, of of these conversations that definitely lead to uh, lead to lead to shifts and and lead to changes and and of course you know it also um these these help inform the secretary when he is engaging in larger interagency policy discussions uh, right, because, uh, particularly you know, given the complexity of some of the issues that we're dealing with, um, while the State Department has a, a central and, and incredibly important role in the policy process, um, we are we are also part of the larger interagency policy process, and so it also helps inform the Secretary so that he can not only um, you know make decisions on his own, but can also carry some of those ideas forward uh, to National Security Council conversations, uh, dialogues with his uh, global counterparts or others. Right. So, I mean, I don't, again, I, you may not know the answer to this, but I, when I saw, you know, this uh, reported in the paper, I was struck by the question, you know, is this a unique thing to the United States or there, uh, are you aware of other such channels that exist, you know, formally in other countries or is this one of our, ex you know, exceptional kinds of things? Uh, I'm not, I, 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 I am not aware of any other channel that is exactly uh like the one that we have and the process exactly like the one that we have. Um, I, I think there are other systems uh, and that have, you know, long histories of their own, have other ways to kind of handle uh, internal disagreements. Um, but I, to a certain extent, I believe the kind of particular mechanism that we've established for the Trump consent here um, is, 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 is very unique in its own way. Right. Okay, so uh, you had been at City College, I guess, earlier this week, uh, and at the Colin Powell School, uh, which is an obvious connection to the State Department. And I guess I'm curious, you know, I, I guess one of the things you were talking about up there was recruitment policies. And as somebody who's long been interested in the kind of social structure of the Foreign Service, um, you know, I know that Colin Powell was very important in promoting legislation and policies, you know, designed to make the Foreign Service look somewhat more like the American population than it did when it was, you know, uh, kind of described as pale male and Yale. Those days are, you know, not entirely gone, but uh, I think it's a very different place. And so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, how that's working and how that happened. 
No, absolutely. And I, you know, the second, the, the legacy of, of Secretary Powell, of course, uh, certainly lives on uh, uh, here in the department. And it's interesting, actually, because in some ways, because, um, you know, given the kind of life cycle of things now, some of our most senior foreign service officers uh, who are, you know, 20, now 20 plus years uh, into their career uh, started out, uh, you know, in the early years of their career when Secretary Powell was here. And so it's remarkable to actually hear some of the senior leaders whose, whose view of leadership, whose view of the department, uh, whose view of the mission that we have was in so many ways shaped by him and now shaped by his legacy. Uh, and so you're exactly right, you know, his focus on, uh, you know, what we now call DEIA, but, you know, more broadly making sure that you have a department that more directly represents the diversity of the country that, that, that we represent out, out around the world and lives on um, in, in, in this administration. And so, you know, you, there are you know multiple things to, to kind of point back to, you know, early on uh, in our time here, Secretary Lincoln uh, created the role of Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer. Uh, brought back a retired ambassador, Gene Abercrombie, Lynn Stanley, to be the first person to to hold that role, uh, and 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 part of what that was meant to do was to, uh, I mean, the, the the fact of the creation of the role, the fact that the role, uh, you know, reported directly to the secretary was obviously meant to send a very strong signal about the importance of this to the department. It was also meant to try and find ways to then further embed this work in 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 our bureaucracy. I think one of the most important things um, that uh, Ambassador Abercrombie and Stanley did, one of the most important things that this administration uh, has done um, in those first few years um, was to uh, was to, to look at data. And I think that's one of the kind of maybe even biggest differences uh, between kind of, you know, if you look 20 plus years ago when Secretary Powell was here and, and today uh, is the realization that, um, you know, it, it, it's incredibly hard to actually quantify what success looks like, in part because we didn't actually have a baseline. Uh, and so one of the things that we that we released within the past year was a kind of demographic baseline report that helped us understand, you know, actually how are we doing, right? If we want to measure our success in the future, well, we need to understand exactly where it was that we started from. And a lot of that requires self-identification and, uh, and, and actually intentionally collecting the data. Uh, and so it sounds, it sounds small and it sounds bureaucratic, but I actually think this hard work of, of, of collecting and assembling uh, baseline data for us uh, is going to be one of the most important things for how we not only um, quantify and measure, but build on success in this realm in 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. Uh, and so that, you know, that, again, that is a, that is a, a very technical piece of a business that had to get done, but it's really essential to everything else that we, that we want to do. Um, I think one of the other great steps that we've that we've made moving forward is to, you know, we have kind of opened up different pipelines into the department. And this is one of the things I really enjoy having the chance to talk uh, with uh, with Powell School CCNY students about uh, when I was on campus was all of the different pipelines and opportunities that are uh, that are now available. So, for instance, the State Department finally offers paid internships. Um, that is not something that we had ever been able to do before. And in doing so, opens up so many more pathways to, to joining for so many people who, who simply didn't have the financial resources uh, to, to otherwise uh, sign on. And so that, you know, that for us is, is a really big step forward in, 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 in our, in our DBIA mission. Um, there, are, there are existing fellowships that have, you know, that have um, uh, sought out candidates from kind of underrepresented um, uh, communities before the, the, pick, uh, the Pickering and the Wrangle Fellows programs are, I think, 
uh, quite well known to folks, but we've we've sought to add new programs, uh, including a Powell Fellowship, um, uh, including uh, a, a fellowship for um, uh, diplomatic security in the, in the kind of uh, law enforcement realm, uh, including a new fellowship to bring in IT talent um, that is meant to kind of find ways to attract different people uh, who otherwise, again, might not have uh, the, the resources or experience to, to, to get into our pipeline, to, to find ways to, to get their foot in the door. Um, and then I think the, you know, the kind of the final thing uh, I would say on all of that is that obviously, you know, it's, it's incredibly important. I, I don't think it goes, I don't think it has to be said, but I'll say it anyway. It's incredibly important to, that our workforce looks like the country that we represent, because again, to talk about our, our embassies and consulates all around the world, for so many people around the world, the first time they, and for many, maybe even the only time they will see an American face to face is the American on the other side of that visa window when they're applying for a visa to come here to visit, right? Our foreign, our foreign service officers who, who are who are on, on, on consulate force. Uh, and so that, you know, first impressions go a long way. Uh, and so we want to make sure that their impression of America is one that, again, represents the, the full diversity of, of the country we have. Um, but also, I think one of the other realities that we're confronting is that, uh, and this again gets to the complexity of our diplomacy, is that um, you know even you know people like me who have a political science history and English background, that's really the bread and butter of diplomacy, right? You know, the social sciences, the humanities. But at a point in time, when we're confronting things like global pandemics, uh, we're confronting things like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, other critical and emerging technologies. We also need the diversity of backgrounds and, and, and academic backgrounds coming into our institution because we're trying to, uh, you know, forge a new international accord to prevent the next pandemic from coming. We need someone with a sciences and, and, and public health background to help us actually understand whether or not disagreement is going to scientifically accomplish the thing that we want. If we're trying to shape the rules of the road for responsible AI all around the world, well, you know, I, I've, I've read a lot of articles, I've read a lot of books, I've done, I've done some of my own research, but I'm not an expert. I'm not a computer scientist or a computer engineer. We need someone with that technical expertise to come in as well. And so I think this is one of the other important parts of kind of our department modernization agenda uh, is to also make sure that we are bringing in a diversity of, of, of background and expertise into our work to make sure that it is informed in the way that it needs to be. And that is, that is I think, always been true of, of, of our diplomacy. Um, you know, you can go back to the Cold War when, you know, we had to we had to make sure that we had, you know, nuclear physicists and others who had expertise in in in, uh, in that realm to make sure that our non-proliferation regime was actually going to be effective. Uh, I think today uh, it's just that those skills are are more broad, uh, more diffuse and, and, and more diverse than they've ever been. And so I think this is just another part of kind of what we talk about and what we mean by the importance of recruiting a diverse workforce here at State. It just reflects the complexity of the world in which we operate. Right. So, I mean, as it happens, um, you know, I wasn't kidding. I, I really was trying to do some research once about, you know, basically the social background of, you know, members of the foreign service. And I was interested in like where they had gone to high school and their religion. And, you know, it's sort of this full spectrum kind of analysis, sociological analysis. I found it very hard to do to get access to personnel records now maybe i just wasn't good at figuring this out or what but in any case i couldn't do it so i was curious 
you know, when you were saying that you were still kind of developing a baseline, I mean, has the department put out some any research that, you know, talks about how people's social backgrounds have changed over time? Or is that still kind of waiting to be done by me or someone else? I don't think we've been able to do it over time, in part because, again, we, we had to actually establish the baseline so that in the future, we can continue to update it and then have a kind of assessment for it uh, for it over time. Uh, because again, part yes, part of part of this can be done by going through our existing personnel records and understanding again you know, where where someone was born, uh, you know what level of education they received. Uh, there are there are elements of that that we can simply go back to our personnel records and and and, and identify. Um, but when it comes to you know someone's race, race or ethnicity and how they identify, when it comes to whether someone self identifies with a disability, um, whether it comes to a whole bunch of these other vectors, that requires people voluntarily providing that information. And so that's that's the kind of information that we simply don't have going back historically, but it's incredibly important for us to have going into the future. And so I think that that is the, uh, a little bit of the distinction between you know what we what we can still. Uh, go back over time and and, and analyze, uh, but also what you know what has kind of been uh, a little bit lost, but that we want to make sure it isn't lost moving forward. Right. Well, maybe when I have a little more time on my hands, I'm going to come back to you and ask you to help me figure out how to get at those records so that I can finally do that project. Sounds like it might be of some use to the department and others. Anyway, th that's it for today's episode. I want to thank. Assistant Secretary of State Bill Russo for sharing his insights about the operations and recruitment policies of the State Department. Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us. And we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Mm -hmm.